Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Excuse me as I engage in child torture over here. Um, I'm back from maternity leave and... I know a lot of you have been praying with and for my family with everything that's been going on and my baby girl's doing well her heart um, we're working through the heart issues she has three holes in her heart and then um, some high pressure in part of the heart that's increasing that difficulty that led us to the hospital originally that indicated all of uh, the challenges that we ended up having with being in the NICU right after uh, she was born and it's interesting because what we learned, one of the things that was actually impacting, causing more strain on the heart was her tongue tie. She had a tongue, lip, and a double tie on one side of her cheek. And so we took all, care of all of that, did a laser a surgery last week on it. And if you had a child with tongue tie, you know those torturous exercises that you have to do. I, I try to like turn her away from me as I massage in those wounds. Last time I had it with my first daughter as well, and I think they told me to do it for like three to six months. I think it was almost six months. Uh, Not as often as in the beginning. You have to do it six times a day. And it truly is child torture. I I feel it's so odd when I'm sitting here, you know, pushing in her little wounds, trying to make sure that they stretch and doing her mouth exercises. I try to avoid eye contact with her. And after she's done, I'm sitting here consoling her going, oh, it's okay. What happened? (laughs) I feel like a little kid that like is a bully and picks on another kid. And then the parent turns around and looks. And then you pretend like you're doing nothing wrong. That's what I feel like when I'm doing these exercises on my daughter. Anyways, it's our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. Thanks for being with me, praying with us. It's great to be here today. Joining me in just a little bit will be Abigail Favale, uh, but I want to talk to you about what's going on in the gender front. We're going to discuss that a little later with Abigail. We'll talk about um, whether we are all on a gender journey, and we're also going to talk about this whole idea of whether or not... um, everyone fits into a non-bin into a binary uh, that is male or female and that it's a lie that not everyone fits into an into a binary. Uh, but before we go there, I do want to talk about a common sense law that protects children and reinforces parents' rights. In Virginia, in the state of Virginia, a house bill uh, is in the Senate right now. They're in Virginia. It's a Democrat-controlled Senate. It's actually, fascinatingly, this week just passed through an education and health uh, special committee that's after already having passed the House there in Virginia. It's called Sage's Law. And basically what it does, it requires schools to Uh, basically give information to parents if a child gives any evidence about experiencing gender confusion. 
gender dysphoria that you have to loop a parent in. You can't hide information from the parent. You have to include them and converse with at least one of the children's parents. The second thing is that it would actually ban biological men and boys from competing in sports specifically meant to be for women and girls. This is important. We're talking about Title IX and why Title IX was implemented for fair fairness in one area, including sports, but also to protect women, for example, in locker rooms, uh, which we talked about yesterday here on Trending. You need to go and listen to yesterday's episode if you haven't already. There's a link on my Instagram story and social media if you want to check that out. But we need to pray in Virginia and many states that are passing bills and laws specifically addressing parents' rights, protecting women, and putting the kibosh on this insanity about male and female, because it's important uh, that we have that understanding in society, especially with children, and we continue to uphold it. Here's the bottom line. Number one, parents have a right to know what's going on with their children. This is why it's a good bill and it should be a law. Number two, school educators should keep nothing from parents, period period. I I shouldn't have to repeat that. Parents have the best vested interest in their children and they're thriving and parents shouldn't be left out of the loop. Parents also, and this is a reminder for parents, need to support teachers and help keep them in check with healthy engagement. And I say healthy engagement because I think there's a lot of, well, my kid didn't do that. My child's perfect, even with well-intended parents. I'm thinking of a friend recently. We know the principal of uh, this friend's school, and uh, the friend contacted us because they're getting ready to touch base with the principal because they assume that their child has done nothing wrong uh, in a particular situation where some of the details came out. And I'm kind of sitting here thinking, I don't know. Do you really want to assume that your really little kid didn't do anything wrong in this situation and you'd go right to the principal? I I think that I bring this up because we have to have that perspective that teachers, in some respects, have lost respect for parents because parents have, on one spectrum, been disengaged and on another spectrum are just quick to jump in and criticize and hit the teacher for every little correction that their child receives rather than coming along aside and keeping them uh, accountable. So that's, I think, the perspective that we should have, especially when we see laws like this potentially being passed in various states. Uh, God bless legislators and pray for them in the state of Virginia who are fighting for this. And we pray for conversion of heart and mind as we hopefully will see the passing of House Bill 2432, known as Sage's Law, to protect children and uphold parents' rights. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I want to talk about gender today. It's a hot topic. We've been talking about it a lot lately, as we always do here on Trending. One of the common things you hear is that not everyone fits into a binary. That is, not everyone fits into the category of male, and not everyone fits into the category of female. Joining me today to discuss this is Abigail Favalli. She's a professor at McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and she wrote the recent book over the last year published called The Genesis of Gender. Uh, Welcome to Trending, Abigail. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about this idea that not everyone fits into a non-binary. I'm fascinated that in an age of quote-unquote scientism, uh, that people even claim this because it's rather not scientific, nor does it fall in line with our deeply held Catholic beliefs with regard to God creating us a male and female. Yeah, it's pretty wild, I have to say, as well. Um, and, okay, so the first, the first, I guess, angle to address this 
question is the argument that sex is a spectrum rather than a binary, right? Because that's kind of the talking point, that there isn't just male and female, but there's this whole, sometimes people say a spectrum, sometimes people will say sex is like a constellation of different things, and, you know, everyone has their own special constellation. Um, But when we're talking specifically about biological sex, that's just simply not the case. So there's a pretty hard binary when it comes to biology. And that's true not just of our species. That's that's true not just of mammals. That's true of any sexually reproducing species, whether plant Mm -hmm. or animal, right? Mm -hmm. So there are only two gametes, male and female gametes. There's no third gamete. There's no third sex. Um, So it's, it's a very clear and stable binary when we're talking about biology. Right. And I appreciate that you emphasize that because I was floored when I ended up in the NICU with my newborn. I'm at the children's hospital and I'm filling out paperwork and they're not asking for biological sex. They're asking for gender and they give this massive array of options. And I'm thinking I'm at a children's hospital and my child is four days old. Are you kidding me right now? And I think I wrote in there, I marked it off, and then I wrote, please treat my child as a biological female, just to be clear. Um, but it, it's true. We need to address that in that direction. And we do acknowledge, and I do always want to give that caveat, Abigail, that there are very rare exceptions where there is um, mm-hmm. ambiguity, where let's say the genitalia of a child presents itself as ambiguous, and you're not quite sure. So what do you mm-hmm. do? You check the chromosomes, and usually you have an answer there. Or where the chromosomes are damaged, usually the genitalia is presenting itself more in one direction. But these exceptions can often be solvable by comparing one versus the other, or two are so rare that in those exceptions, they're considered an anomaly. And those are the cases where we really need to have that utmost concern and affection and mercy in those situations. But that's not what's happening today. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I love that you brought that up um, because I really think that people need to be aware of disorders of sexual development because that's the most common argument that's used to uphold this idea that sex isn't a binary. So people will say, well, intersex people exist, right? But you're exactly right. Um, There are a whole range of different conditions that can disrupt normal sexual development. The vast majority of these do not actually result in sexual ambiguity. And those that do are very complex and very individualized cases. And in those cases, you really need to just look at the person as a whole. Because even in those cases, the body itself will be tending toward a particular pathway mm-hmm. of you know, being ordered toward the production of a small gamete or ordered toward the production of large gametes and gestation, right? So it requires a multidisciplinary team looking at the, the person as a whole. And this is another thing Another kind of rhetorical tactic that I see is completely disregarding the organization of the whole and basically reducing sex to a bunch of a bunch of different disparate characteristics. Right. So saying, well, there's chromosomal sex and there's, you know, genitalia and there's hormonal sex as if as if the fact is that in ninety nine point nine nine percent of births, all of these different sexual characteristics come as a package deal in one organized whole. So you really have to think structurally when you're talking about biological sex. So the structure Mm -hmm. of an organism as a whole and not just individual traits. And I appreciate you saying that, Abigail, because we're talking about differences on the level of male-female differences 
in neuroscience being discovered. I mean, many neuroscience scientists that don't even have um, perhaps an ideology in one way versus the other are being called neurosexist today because they're recognizing these differences. Medication impacting men versus women differently, not based on weight, height, etc., cetera, uh, but actually based on biology, male or female. And so when we look at all these dimensions, all the way down to the way muscle fibers and tissues are developed and the way they're developed for power versus endurance between the differences of male and female, it's absolutely riveting that any scientist should actually be excited to talk about the differences rather than trying to say there's no such thing and making it ambiguous, which I would argue really is a severe philosophical error today uh, because people will ask Abigail why force a person to fit into a binary and I think if we start with a philosophical worldview uh, that is so flawed to say that there's no such thing as male and female and that each have a nature uh, then we do kind of go that far as to say well everything's ambiguous mm-hmm. right right so I think what we're seeing actually it's I mean it's good that we brought up the the intersex or disorders of sexual development um, rare kind of exception to the norm, but what's happening is now those are treated as the norm, right? So it's almost as if every single human being, this is the argument, is born sexually amb- ambiguous. So we have this whole phrase now, sex assigned at birth. You've probably seen that on some forums right. as you've been filling things out, right? So instead of just sex, it's sex assigned at birth. Now that word assigned is really philosophically loaded because it reflects a perspective that sex is not a biological fact that's observed and recorded at birth, but that it's actually imposed upon the physician um, rather than recognized. And so now what we're really seeing is that every single child is treated as sexually amb- ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. instead of the, the idea of disorders of sexual development being kind of an exception to the norm, now there really is no norm at all. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I remember seeing this About 10 years ago, uh, before Bruce Jenner came out and kind of really ushered in this massive wave of transgenderism, uh, prior to that, I remember people who were having children and even friends and acquaintances of mine, I was shocked when they were saying, oh, you know, we're really not doing pink or blue. We're really going to focus on the neutral colors of green and yellow. And I would just kind of laugh because... My mindset was I was always so surprised that for some reason we want to put people into this box mentality that pink is girl, blue is boy, and you stick with that only. And grant, that's fun for a nursery and that's fun for parties and games uh, for babies and celebrating them. But do we really think we're that effective in choosing purple today? Right. I mean, it's the pink and blue thing is interesting because, okay, so we've been talking a lot about biological sex. And there is really a very stable binary when it comes to biological sex. Human beings come in two reproductive modalities, male and female, end of story. Um, but when we, when we look at um, hum, other dimensions of human existence, so I'm kind of drawing in my head here on the work of Edith Stein. Um, so she talks about there's, there's kind of three dimensions that we can look at. And the first dimension, we're talking about men and women. The first dimension is the, the dimension of shared humanity. So men and women are both fully human. Mm-hmm. So the full range of human capacities and traits is shared by both men and women. So they're both fully rational. They both have free will, you know, these sorts of things. Um, and then there's the level of sexual difference, which is kind of what we've mostly been talking about. And there we see a very clear asymmetry between male and female, very clear differences. But then there's also the level of the individual, 
right? And so every individual is totally unique and, and particular, and there's something really wonderful about that. So a particular woman, you know, she might not be, um, the, you know, she might not reflect some of the average, say, attributes or personality traits mm-hmm. of females. But that doesn't make her any less female or any less of a woman, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to kind of keep all three of those dimensions in mind because at the human level and the individual level, we're not dealing with hard binaries, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to sexual difference, there is very clear asymmetry. But if we're thinking about all three levels, I think that gives us a more robust and holistic way of thinking about people that allows individual differences while also not denying the reality of sex. Mm-hmm. And even with an example of that particular that I think is important to give, like, give the philosophy, give the understanding, because that's what's so profound about St. Edith Stein, those three dimensions, shared humanity, sexual differences, and the particular. And there are a lot of particulars today that because we think we're presenting as different from um, those who are similar to us, i.e. women compared to other women. You know, I think I grew up in the mountains. I grew up playing in the mud and hiking <laughs> and barefoot all the time. And my preference for friends uh, are people who don't mind getting dirty and when you know sometimes people who are like you freaking out at any little bug it's kind of not really exactly I guess you could argue my type per se when you're talking about friendships Mm -hmm. and we're talking about particulars those interests um those things that we're more interested that some might argue are a little bit I don't know they'd like to argue are more masculine than others but I don't really think so in certain particulars such as these Mm -hmm. yeah I totally agree so yeah, because when we think about things that aren't strictly biological, right, like, say, you know, liking to play in the dirt or something, like, that's probably part, partly biological, partly environmental, you know, but that's just kind of an aspect of your personality. So when we're talking about things like that. I don't really think it's that helpful to label those things as masculine or feminine. You know, um, something I really like about John Paul II's writings is that he he really only uses the terms masculine and feminine in relation to persons in relation to embodied persons rather than like abstract things. And I try to do that as much as possible, even though sometimes it, it can be helpful to use the term masculine to mean male typical, for example. Um, But I still think it's important, like you said, to realize that people like just because sexual difference is real doesn't mean that we have these like cookie cutter, versions of like what it what a girl should be and what a boy should be and the irony is that some of this this gender theory that's out there especially gender identity theory that is actually really based on those kind of limiting ideas about what it means Mm -hmm. to be a girl or a boy right so the idea is like whatever it doesn't matter what your body is if you like my little ponies then you're probably a girl Right. And that actually, to me, is is much more limiting and much more regressive than the idea that, no, the body is real. The body seeks the truth of who we are. And we can live that masculinity or femininity out in a way that's unique because each individual is unique. I want to come back and drill back down on what you just said about JP2 and kind of 
first tie into what you were just saying, like I remember when Bruce Jenner came out and he's calling himself Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, it's the first year or so after this, and he ends up receiving the Woman of the Year award, and he comes clacking out in his high heels, uh, dressed in this really tight-fitting dress, makeup all done up, and when accepting the award about the Woman of the Year, what he talks about are these high heels, this lipstick, my makeup, and it made that abstract comment about women that you're referring to. So let's drill down just a little harder on JP2 using male and female specifically with regard to individual persons, because I think that's something I'd like to maybe understand and clarify a little bit better, because I think that is very significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just had this really long argument with a Dominican priest about this. <laughs> um, and he was like, no, you can't just use the term masculine to basically mean male, like like manliness, right? Like being a man. And I was, I was like, but I think that's, I think that's something profound because I think what John Paul II is doing is he's shifting gender back to the world of persons rather than these kind of abstract traits, because there is a tradition. I think there is, there's a line in Western intellectual history, or not even just Western, but in, in Eastern cultures as well, that almost has this, I this like neoplatonic idea that, masculinity and femininity are like out there. They're these disembodied kind of cosmic realities like yin and yang. And then we embody those things. Mm -hmm. And I really think John Paul II is trying to like ground us in the realm of the human person and Mm -hmm. persons, human persons are always embodied, but we're not just bodies, right? We're also souls. We're embodied souls. So I think He's, he's really trying to take this personalist and embodied approach and to bring masculinity and femininity back down to the realm of the person. So then, for example, like, any, like whatever I'm doing as a woman in the world, kind of exercising my agency and my will in the world, is an expression or a manifestation of my femininity, right? And so there's a sense in which I can, you know, manifest my femininity or be feminine and in intentional ways, um, but not restrictive ways, but ways I think that are more oriented toward virtue, toward Christ-likeness, rather than these kind of flimsy ideas we sometimes have on the cultural level, you know, like what you were saying, like high heels and tight dresses, right? Like those kind of superficial um, things about femininity, Mm -hmm. whereas femininity is really something much more deeper and uh, much more about the whole person. So let's take an example. And if you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Uh, that is Abigail Favale. She's the author of the book, The Genesis of Gender. Abigail, I keep thinking, for example, when we talk about kind of these abstract things or things that we block into maleness versus femaleness. Uh, one of those includes, for example, dressing more feminine, maybe wearing more dresses, doing your makeup, how you do your hair, keeping it long versus short. And as Katy Perry has kind of played with her femininity versus masculinity going from gender neutral pronouns back to female pronouns over the last couple of years it was interesting when she went back to female pronouns in line with her her biological sex she was talking about how she was rediscovering her feminine side and one thing that presented itself is she was talking about how she was dressing more feminine so what do we make of those instances then And I know you're not a therapist, but I think there's a lot we could talk about when women who are biological females struggle with gender identity and then start to work it out. And they do present more feminine in the way they present themselves, such as Katy Perry. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, so any like any culture that exists is going to have some kind of cultural expression of sexual difference, right? Because every culture has to deal with sexual asymmetry because that's like the ground of human existence, right? So it's it's this essential difference. So you will see cultural variations throughout history and among different cultures to how the particular norms might look in terms of dress, in terms of hair. You know, there are, you know, there might be certain cultures where everyone keeps their hair super short. So long hair isn't a particularly feminine symbol, right? So that's certainly true. But I do think there is something to navigating the particular symbols of something that's real that our culture offers. Because basically that's what's happening, right? So you have, you have these kind of cultural symbols of something that's deeply real. Now, sometimes those cultural symbols aren't good, and they might actually do violence to what's real, something like Chinese foot binding or female genital mutilation, things mm-hmm. like that. Like those are not morally neutral cultural expressions, right? Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about dress, like what you're saying, hairstyle, I do think there's something to... Um, learning how to participate in those symbols in a positive way Mm -hmm. while also not confusing those symbols or making those more important than what's real, right? Okay, so, so yeah, so not making wearing a dress more important than the fact that I am a female, right? Like, there's a difference. Right, and I know so many, like, beautiful women who I think have profoundly holy, (laughs) like, versions of femininity, who are also not super feminine, you know, mm-hmm. who might wear kind of like flannel shirts or whatever. And I, that doesn't bother me at all, right? I do think sometimes, I think maybe there's a difference between whether the symbol, like say the morally neutral kind of symbol is being rejected. I think that might be a sign of some kind of like deeper um, dissonance with one's, yeah. with one's gender that I think is, is perhaps like a source of disintegration that should be, you know, kind of looked at and right. considered and contemplated and explored, right? Yes. And I appreciate you saying that because I worked with a lot of young women who um, think that there's something wrong with them because they're rejecting wearing a dress or they're rejecting makeup, but they're not rejecting the fact that they are feminine, the fact that they are a woman. And that's a really important distinction. That's Abigail Favale today on Trending with Timory. We're going to be back in just a moment. We're going to dive into that question and common topic we hear. Are we all on a gender journey or not? And are we preventing people from flirting? when we allow them to explore their gender in the opposite sex. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back. If you'd like to weigh in on the conversation, ask your question, reach out on social media at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. I put that question up there on social media, especially Instagram. I'm watching that as we speak. So if you have a question, let me know. Uh, fascinated by some of the questions coming in. Hopefully we'll have time to dive into those. Joining me now is Abigail Favale. She's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, and she's the author of The Genesis of Gender. We're drilling down on specifically the topic of gender. We were talking before, and I think this is really important. So if you miss the conversation, catch the podcast later. You can subscribe at relevantradio.com forward slash trending, 
or wherever you catch your podcast, we're there, Trending with Tim Ray. But we were talking about the lie that not everyone fits into a binary. Uh, now we're going to transition. And again, that's a lie. Everyone does fit into a binary. We did talk about those rare, 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 rare medical exceptions. Uh, but are we all on a gender journey? I think this is an important question today because as we were discussing before, uh, there is kind of this crisis that some people are experiencing where, Abigail, people will say, well, you know, I don't I don't like dresses and I don't like makeup. I was talking to a 15-year-old recently and, you know, she ha- was having some massive crisis. She comes from a great family, you know, very, very masculine men in her family, tons of girls and Uh, She just felt very off because she thought, you know, am I a man because I'm rejecting these particular things? And I want I did say we should say it's puberty, right? We're doubting ourselves. We feel uncomfortable in our own skin. We want to wear baggy T-shirts. And that's a common thing that some girls go through. You know, some want to really flaunt it. Some want to hide what they have. And so that kind of brings to mind the whole question, whether it's a 15 year old girl or even a 45 year old man. Are we all on a gender journey? What are your thoughts on this particular topic, Abigail? Because it's kind of trendy in theology today as well as we're talking and debating about gender. Well, my first instinct, anyone says anything about gender, is I want to say, okay, define your terms for me, please. Because there are so many different definitions of gender. So everything depends upon what you mean when you say gender, right? So I would say like, For the most part, when people talk about gender journey, they're using a concept of gender that's relatively new and I'd say has really come to prominence in the last 10 years or so. And that is the idea that gender is this deeply felt sense of self, this self-concept of oneself as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or neither. And that sense of self is so profound and unchanging Well, except that it might change because we're all on a journey, (laughs) Um, but it must be expressed and kind of in, it must be expressed physically on the body. It must be expressed through the clothes that we wear. So there's this real emphasis on what it looks like, right? Like what we look like as if that's almost the most important thing about being an authentically masculine or feminine human being. And so I would want to just sort of shift away from that. Like whether you're a man or a woman, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it actually has nothing to do with what you wear or Mm -hmm. what your hair looks like. It has everything to do with the kind of body you are. Yes. Okay. So men, please don't wear rompers, right? right? (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, like, you know, let's just, let's just diffuse that the importance of clothing and fashion and expression, which I think social media has just like heightened mm-hmm. to, to yes. a pathological degree, right? It's all, it's almost like we have this idea that we're these avatars. Like I'm an avatar and I have to sort of like continually shift and change and shape my avatar so that it's, ex- it's perfectly expressing this sense yes. of self that I have, mm-hmm. right? And I really think that that's, a kind of fallen anthropology. Like that's a fallen understanding right. of the human person. But and we, and when I think about the word journey too, like, well, what's the trajectory, right? Every journey is heading somewhere. Okay. So I might think like I'm on a gender journey in the sense that like I'm on a journey toward Christ and I want to be continually transformed more deeply into the woman who God has created me to be. 
right? So there is this sense of like dynamic growth and integration that's possible. But the gender journey idea is often about the, I don't know, like it doesn't seem to have this particular trajectory and it doesn't seem to be about wholeness and integration, but it really seems to be about like customizing oneself as if your body is an avatar. Yes, I agree with that. It's almost as if people think uh, it's the evolution of the human person. I remember one person actually did say that to me. Someone I went to school with, I went to a very small Catholic university, John Paul Great Catholic University, very orthodox teaching in line with the Catholic Church. And I remember um, a student years later after graduating saw that I was doing a lot on the gender issue. And he told me that I was getting it all wrong. I was missing the fact that people have evolved. And that's why what's happening is happening with same-sex marriage and gender today. That This is all a part of the human person evolving. And it kind of made me laugh because when I think about this, it reminds me of the book series and movie series, The Hunger Games. When you saw people um, super modifying their bodies to have whiskers coming out, um, to have hair growing out of odd places on their body that would uh, present as animal-like characteristics, which is part of what you're seeing with this gender craze is you are seeing people you know i remember the one 20 something year old about eight years ago who suddenly identified as a baby and his girlfriend was literally caring for him in a crib and bottle feeding him and changing his diapers and it's weird but that's kind of what it is it's this self-expression and outward characteristics that are confused that we're saying this is what we do rather than focusing on this is who I am. And I think that that's a really important uh, distinction that has to be made uh, when we're talking about gender and whether we are on a gender journey. We are, but it's not so much about those exterior characteristics as you're saying, Abigail. Yeah, I think your your connection there with um, almost like the the transhumanist angle is a really good one, right? Because I think another thing that's happening in the, the typical gender journey idea is that the idea of human nature is completely disregarded, right? So there isn't a sense that like, I'm a particular kind of being. And so development, growth and flourishing looks a particular way, right? Like we could say that the growth of a tree looks a particular way or that flourishing looks a particular way for a cat or a dog, right? But we seem to be forgetting this as a culture that like, no, there is no human nature, right? So there is nothing, no nature to which I'm kind of like where flourishing is found to living in harmony with that nature. Rather, mm-hmm. it's all about my desires and my feelings and my will and somehow expressing those through the body with no sense that there's a givenness to the body. Um, there's a givenness to our nature. So I think that that's also one if I had to point to something foundational that's missing in the gender journey idea, it's the very concept that human beings have a nature. Mm-hmm. Now, and you use different language from what the secular culture would. You say there's a givenness uh, to our body. Yep. It's given that we are X, Y, and Z, that, you know, we have a male or a female nature and that that male or female nature goes in accordance with our soul and our body, even more so our soul, which I'll touch on an assumption in a moment. But what people would say instead of givenness is that you are making an assumption. Uh, yeah, I think it's helpful to pull in you know, what the Catholic Church says on this. And we spent a while with licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparro 
actually talking about this, and that is where the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in two very profound paragraphs, paragraph 2332 and 2333, uh, talks about how everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity, and talks about how sexuality affects all aspects of the human person, including the body and the soul, and the unity of the two. Uh, But another area, I think, when we're talking about whether or not gender is a journey that we're all on, it actually says in the catechism there that everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. And I think there are a couple things that have to go in between acknowledging and accepting it. I think all of us, no matter what our broken or unbroken pasts might be, need to kind of walk through this journey with regard to our maleness, if you're a biological male, or femaleness, if you're a biological female, of acknowledging the difference, getting to know it, really taking a deep dive into what does this mean, accepting it and embracing it, and not reducing it again to exterior characteristics that are a part of it, but not the fullness of who we are. Right. Yeah. And and not confusing that, like accepting and acknowledging one's sexual identity, not confusing that with, you know, imposing on myself all the stereotypes that my culture associates with women or men. Right. So I think there's something when the, when the Catholic Church talks about sexual identity, first of all, they mean something much that is connected to who we are in our nature. There's this givenness. Right. Whereas I think identity in a secular understanding is much more about how I feel rather than objectively who I am, right? So there's this kind of objectivity to the idea of sexual identity in the Catholic understanding as opposed to identity being purely subjective because that's what we're seeing mostly in contemporary gender theory is that gender and identity are purely subjective self-concepts, right? And so that the understanding of identity in a Catholic um, in a Catholic view, is very different. So they're using the words identity differently there. So we established that difference between maleness and femaleness, and even the fact that we are all on sort of a gender search and discovery, but in line with our biological sex. Yet a lot of people will say, it. well, why would you deny someone else their ability to flourish in another identity today? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, well, one... I guess one way I would respond to that is to dig into this idea of flourishing, right? Because I Mm -hmm. think that there is a different understanding of flourishing. So I'm working with the idea that flourishing is living out the fullness of who you are as a creature, right? So your nature as a creature. So I'm drawing not only from Catholic tradition here, but also just, classic Aristotelian philosophy, right? That Mm -hmm. there's a way to be a human well, right? And that looks a particular way because human beings are a particular kind of thing. Now, that's a very different kind of flourishing than just the ability to do whatever I want with as few limits as possible, right? So Mm -hmm. I would say that going to war with one's biological sex is not a road to flourishing, right? ultimately in the end and that there's real cost to that both physical and also just holistic costs so i don't buy the idea that every every fulfilled desire is by the by the fact that it's a fulfilled desire also a kind of flourishing right because mm-hmm. that totally overlooks what flourishing means when right. we're talking about human beings 
But a lot of people will say, well, God is revealing himself through us and he's revealing our sexuality through us. Why would he put thoughts or ideas into our minds if he didn't want us to live them out? And again, that's where we have a misunderstanding of the human person, um, human nature, concupiscence, that tendency towards sin. And all of that is so important. But again, it kind of comes back, and I think this is the difficult part, is that we have to determine whether or not we agree that there's a design for the human person and there's a creator. And I think with that, we also have to recognize the difference between a person and a thing. Things are meant to be used. Wood is meant to be used. It can be used for firewood. It can make a chair. It can build a house. But the human person isn't meant to be used and manipulated and articulated to be molded by us. A human person is created to be loved. And that starts with me loving and embracing myself so that others can also love and embrace me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's really, I like that you're pushing on this because I do think it's important for us, even as we talk about, you know, the concept of gender on a philosophical level or on the level of biology or theology, to also remember, like, there are real people who experience very profound discordance within themselves when it comes to their gender, and that can be very painful and very difficult to navigate. And there's not a lot of resources, you know, or models of accompaniment that we've developed yet because this has all kind of happened so fast culturally. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to realize that. But I guess I would say our experience matters, but that we should be formed by God's self-revelation. We shouldn't form God according to our self-revelation, mm, right? And that's that's really where true. Yeah. That's where, that's where the truth is, right? I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road. Like either, either God has the power to save us or he doesn't, right? And if he does, then like our experience right? We should be brought into that light. Okay. And that doesn't mean it's like this quick fix. It doesn't mean that, you know, magically gender discordance is resolved or anything like that. I mean, I think the the road of accompaniment is long and it requires gradualism and it's not a simple thing. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that like the, the fullness of the truth and who we are is found in Christ, not mm-hmm. in our own experience. Abigail, what you said was so important. I'll paraphrase it. You said we should be formed by God's revelation and not try to form ourselves according to our self-revelation. That, that's so important. What is God saying about my body, not what am what am I trying to say about my own body? That's Abigail Philip Valle here on Trending with Timory. Can you hold on with us just a moment, Abigail? We have a couple questions I'd like to dive into briefly. Check out her book, The Genesis of Gender. We'll post a link on social media. Just follow me at Timory, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, where we've also tagged Abigail on Twitter as well. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Trending with Timory. Abigail Favale here with me. She's author of Genesis of Gender, and she's also a professor at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Abigail, a couple of questions came in that I thought were just interesting and thought-provoking. And one of them was from Mark. Mark called and he was asking if we thought there's a correlation between good-looking men having a tendency to be more gender fluid than the rest of the population. 
Um, I have no idea. Um, I mean, personally, I really like men who look like lumberjacks. So that's not super gender fluid. Um, so I don't really know how to answer that question. What do you think? You know, I think it's interesting. Again, it's a curveball, but it's fun. And people are actually asking these. And I understand like when they say like more good, better good looking men. Well, I think that's subjective, right, to the individual. Um, but I do understand when they're saying there can often be very beautiful looking characteristics of uh, some of these men who are expressing themselves as gender fluid. And I do think that's legitimate. You know, I think there's a man who can I, I can say, okay, is really, really handsome. And there's also a man who I can say, he's beautiful. And I mean that. And that's not less masculine. Um, but I do think it's an interesting question to be asking. And I don't have an answer for it. Well, I wonder, too, like, as the more you're talking about the question, too, I'm just thinking about, like, the the rich artistic tradition we have, especially in the Catholic world. I mean, just, you know, I was in Rome for the first time and just seeing these beautiful sculptures of male bodies and female bodies. But some of the male bodies were, like, you know, very, they're very graceful, very beautiful, very smooth, right? So in ways that, again, like we would have this caricature of being feminine, but it's actually just a very beautiful expression of masculinity, right? Mm, so right. I think the problem is maybe our, our like framing of that as gender fluid in a way, mm. right? And again, yeah. this like, this kind of like makes the boxes of men, of like real man and real woman more and more restrictive, right? Mm-hmm. So I would want to say like, yeah, a, a man who's beautiful in that way is still a man. Like, we don't need to put him in this special category. Right. Yeah, I agree. It is an interesting thought, though. And again, I think it does come back to that subjective interest in the individual. But I do see that that kind of correlation in a certain respect, I guess you could argue. Another question that came in from Brittany, which, by the way, says she's a huge fan of yours. She said, do you have any recommendations for a counselor trying to survive university with this topic? Oh, so like being a university student or being a counselor to students, do you know? I think a counselor to students, it sounds like. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. This is hard. I mean, I think I think the in some ways, like I have an easier job because I'm engaging with this topic, like theologically and philosophically. I think it is the pastoral level that is the hardest, whether you're a therapist or a priest, right, because you're you have to meet someone where they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and I, mean, I actually, I, I, sorry, yeah. correction. I Go do ahead. think she's actually a student in training student. to be a therapist. Okay, yep. okay. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, well, keep one, keep one hand firmly on the rail of reality. I would say, um, and you know. Ask, be a question asker. That's what I would, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Ask questions. You know, I think so, so much of the deadening of u- the university culture is, you know, kind of people falling into groupthink and there's an accepted narrative and no one ever questions it. And so I think just being curious, um, I keep getting struck by how incurious some people are about the topic of gender or the topic of gender transition, you know, and when I ask questions about it, like say on social media, people will say, well, why do you, why do you hate trans people? And I'm like, well, if I hated trans people, I would just not be talking about this at all. Right? <laughs> right. This is a hot potato. Right. But the fact is I do care about people who identify as trans, people who are gender nonconforming. And I'm genuinely curious 
Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of questions about this framework we have embraced as a culture. And so I'm mm-hmm. going to ask those questions, right? So mm-hmm. that's what I would say. I would say keep, stay grounded in reality and become a curious question asker. I think that's a fantastic point of like reference of this is who I am. This is where I am with regard to the transgender topic in therapy. Some resources all throughout there. Uh, one of our guests we have on regularly is licensed marriage and family therapist, Michael Gasparro. Uh, he's worked with reintegrative therapy, which helps to kind of dive into a lot of the research on this and even address, you know, the fact that there are a lot of comorbidities for people who are uh, really suffering from gender uh, dysphoria, that often there are things that were going on in their life far prior to a sudden an onset, because for many people today, it's a sudden onset of gender dysphoria that need to be addressed prior to just focusing in on the gender crisis itself. Um, Let's focus on those other things that uh, could be presenting, such as depression, anxiety, uh, cutting, suicidality, so many things that are pre-existing and comorbidities. Uh, So reintegrative therapy is a great resource, and they've got tons of research there. Um, Listen to the episodes with Michael here on Trending. I'll actually post a link uh, to some of his episodes episodes here in the episode notes for today's podcast. But also Dr. Laura Haynes, we've talked to her before here on Trending. Um, she's retired from being a clinical psychologist because she's specifically focusing just on the research of this. And her research is phenomenal. She's presenting at international um theology and psychosomatic um, presentations and conferences because she's saying, hey, the research is there. We don't have to make up our research. It's pretty conclusive. Um, Whether it's people try to say that a person's born gay, the research actually says no, no one's born gay. Uh, And she presents this over and over again. So I think those are some really good resources to tap into and recognize you're not alone on this issue. Abigail, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your book, The Genesis of Gender. It's a topic a lot of people are not willing to dive into, yet it's a hot topic that we all need to be prepared to address. And as I was saying earlier in the week with Michael Gasparro here, when we're addressing this with an individual, whether it's a pronoun crisis with someone we know, or just talking out in theory, asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand this issue better, help us to articulate it, helping us to know what to say in those particular circumstances, whether maybe it's a little awkward because someone's asking you to use uh, gender neutral pronouns or the conversation's a little heated. Pray to the Holy Spirit. He will guide you and help you to enunciate and make those comments and conversations um, wholesome and healthy rather than our very human tendency to confuse things or to be inflammatory and those arguments uh, that things turn into rather than trying to engage it and bring it back to the level of a dialogue and conversation. And that's where I really do believe resources such as, you know, knowing the Socratic method, asking those whom we maybe disagree with or those who are trying to figure this out, ask them questions. Even ask sometimes pointed questions in a subtle way to help them work through understanding the reality, the beauty, and the goodness of the human person and the very fact that God created us male or female, one or the other, not a confusion of the two. And that as the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the great wisdom of the church is emphasized time and time again, that there's a unity of the human person in our sexuality that compiles both our body and our soul. And that we need to not over overemphasize the body and that we need to embrace the dimension of the soul. Because as we know, when we dive into philosophical understanding of the human person, we're body and soul, but mostly soul. 
matter and form. You know, if you dive into philosophy, we need to understand that the two can't be separated and the soul must be emphasized as giving that veil of definition and ability to flourish in everything we do as male or female.